Once again, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And um, man, what a joy it is. As Matt and Kyle have uh, already shared, professed, what a joy it is to be together on Easter Sunday morning. This week has brought about a lot of reflection and memories as it was this time last year where we were first and really in some ways beginning to roll into all that we endured and dealt with in 2020. And I remember very vividly hoping and praying that perhaps the Lord would allow us to be able to be together on Easter Sunday morning. I don't know if you remember that week or two leading up to it. There was this, I don't know, fantasy or some idea that possibly we would be able to gather safely in person, and that didn't happen. And for the very first time in my ministry, and I pray by God's grace, the last time in my ministry, I preached an Easter Sunday morning to a camera and was not able to see all of your faces. And um, while we thank God for the gift of technology and all that it means uh, to us, it is such a joy to be together in person once again. And um, and then just to think back, uh, for those of you that are a part of the City Church family or have been visiting for a little bit of time, you know that last year prior to Easter we had been meeting in a school and had to go online and preach to cameras and had no real understanding, weren't sure exactly what God was doing or where He would lead us. And now here we are on Easter Sunday morning on this beautiful property. Isn't it an amazing thing what God has done in the last year? We had our first sunrise service this morning. All of you slackers slept through it. But what a beautiful morning it is. It's so good to be with you. Before we turn back to Luke chapter 24, I do just want to um, give honor. Um, The Bible says to give honor where honor is due, and um, so many of us, and myself included in so many ways, uh, we are enjoying the beauty of this morning and the time of fellowship together and this beautiful choir and the worship team and being able to be together in this space, in this tent. And let me just tell you that um, that is due to the efforts of so many who sacrificed hours upon hours this week and the weeks leading up to it to provide this so that we can be here, so that you could walk into this place, have a seat, and be able to worship with your family, with your faith family, to be a guest here. And we pray you felt welcome and encouraged as you walked in. All of those things, none of that, none of that just happens. <laughs> it happens because there's an army of people who love Christ and love His church and desire that His name be glorified every Sunday morning. And so So I just want to thank uh, Matt, uh, Ben, our worship team. Those guys were up here. If you're gathering with us online this morning, it's because they were here till late last night to make sure we had internet. And technology just doesn't always work for us. It's just, you know, uh, uh, Matt believes that, that... the enemy lives somewhere in the internet, in technology. And some of that's true, uh, perhaps. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always challenges. And so I'm so thankful to be able to, to those uh, men and women who have just given so much of their week and um, the last few weeks to prepare so that we could be together on Easter Sunday morning. You know, you read, as uh, Miss Sherry read for us, 
the familiar story, and I would expect that many of us, I would perhaps even most of us in this room, might have be very familiar with that resurrection story, have heard it read before, have read it ourselves, have studied it, and all of those things. It's not a, a story that might be foreign. For some, it might be brand new. You might have walked in, as Kyle said, no idea really what you were doing, but just believing that you needed to be in this place because you got a postcard or you saw it on social media somewhere. But I want to draw our attention to the last few verses of what Miss Sherry read from Luke chapter 24 in verse 11. The, the ladies had gone to the tomb, had seen the tomb was empty. They had come back and reported that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive. And when they heard that message, when they heard those words, the apostles, those that had walked with Jesus, they said, these words seemed to them an idle tale. Peter rose and he ran to the tomb to inspect for himself because he wouldn't take the word of another. Perhaps you're here this morning because you're not willing to take the word of another. And that's okay. Peter did that. He ran to the tomb to see if Jesus was truly alive. Or perhaps you're someone who has thought about Christianity, maybe like me, you've grown up going to church, you've attended Easter Sunday mornings as long as you can remember, but in your everyday life, as you live out in the world, as you encounter all of the challenges and all of the brokenness that this world has, you might find yourself thinking, I just don't know. Is that Jesus? Is that story of His resurrection just an idle tale? Well, I want and I pray that this morning that our time together you might be convinced. And I won't be the one who convinces you. The Holy Word of God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, is what will open your heart to believe this. But that's my prayer. That's what we've been praying all week, is that as we open up God's Word, you might believe that. And if you're a Christian this morning, we go throughout our days, we live our lives, we do all the things that we do, and we're assured of our future and our eternity, and when bad things happen, we sort of cast our hope into that future place. But Easter is not just for Sunday morning, and it's not especially just for Easter Sunday morning. Easter and the resurrection is what propels us to life. That's where we find all hope. And so I pray that you might be encouraged, and you might remember that no, it isn't an idle tale, and that every day of your life is changed because Jesus is alive. He's alive and well. After the disciples had said of them, Perhaps this was an idle tale. They didn't believe in this resurrection. Verse 13 turns to two different characters. Again, for some of us, a familiar passage, but I'm going to pick up where Miss Sherry left off. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, there were two of them going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Here's just an aside. This is not part of the sermon. But if, if you find yourself gathering around friends, perhaps even in doubt sometimes and wondering and again curious or asking questions, and you're talking about Jesus, this passage just is a great reminder of how Jesus always shows up in that moment. I want to encourage you, take time. When you're gathered around for lunch or a meal or you have guys over for the game or whatever the case might be, don't be shy. Consider the things, the true things of the world. And watch as Jesus shows up just as these two men. These two walking down a road discussing the things of Jesus and Jesus draws near to them as they are asking questions, as they're curious. 
What happened to that Jesus? Where is He? I can't believe He's dead. But their eyes, although Jesus was with them, it says in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And He said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found just as the women said, but they did not see. These two disciples of Jesus, we don't know much about them. We know one of them is named Cleopas. Cleopas is referenced previously in the crucifixion story, and so we know that he was a very close disciple of Jesus because he was standing with Jesus' mother at the cross. The other disciple, we don't know his name, but these two are wandering down. They're going away from Jerusalem, leaving all of the events of the cross, and they're despondent. They're brokenhearted. They're sad because they, as it said, they had hoped that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. But notice here they call Him not the Messiah, not the Christ, not Jesus, no, the King, not Lord. They call Him a prophet of God. They've already, quickly after the crucifixion, because it's been three days and it just seems as if death had won, they seem hopeless. They feel hopeless. They say to Jesus as He's walking with them, of course they don't know it's Jesus, He seemed to have all the power. He seemed to be real. But how could He be the Messiah? How could He be God if He was dead? This is so often what happens to us. Death. Or the things that precede death. All of the brokenness that we experience in this life come at us and we find ourselves wondering where's Jesus in this? I thought He was the Redeemer. I thought He was going to take me from all of this, protect me against all of these things. Well, He does. He just doesn't always do it in this life. But because He's alive, because of the power of His resurrection, we don't have to lose hope. I understand you might feel hopeless. But if you notice, these two disciples, their hopelessness was related to what they knew or what they thought they knew. They knew Jesus. They had walked with Him. They had been in close relationship with Him. They had seen all the miracles that He had done. They had, seen, they had heard His teaching. All of these things we know because of how their close relationship with Him. But then they also they saw Him crucified. They saw that He died. And so they became hopeless because they thought that's what they knew. Hopelessness is related to knowledge. There's perhaps many of us who just like these disciples, maybe you grew up in the church, around the church, you have all the knowledge of Jesus' life to know what He did. But here's the reality. Knowledge is not what saves us. 
We think we have the knowledge, and that knowledge should lead to belief. But these disciples, they had heard all of His teaching. They had heard all of the prophecies. They had heard Him say, I must suffer. I must die. But they missed it. There's others of you that maybe don't know much at all about Jesus. And that's okay. Because all you need to know is that Jesus is the Messiah. And you have to know just enough to believe. It is faith, belief that saves us, not our knowledge. I've shared my testimony many times before in our church. I had plenty of knowledge of Jesus. I knew His stories. I knew His teaching. It wasn't until I met the resurrected Jesus personally through His Word as I opened up the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit came that I was made alive. It's through faith, through belief. Jesus responds to these disciples in verse 25 as they're expressing this disbelief and they're despondent and sad. Notice what Jesus says to them there in verse 25. And He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, to believe, not to know, but to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning themselves. Jesus responds and He calls them out and He says, Oh foolish ones, you walked with this Jesus. You heard and He knows He was there. You heard all the things that I taught you. You saw all the things that I did. You heard me say that I must suffer and die. This reminds me of my freshman algebra teacher. Algebra 1, that was where I struggled. Not a good math. I rely on Matt to do all our math here at the church. Kyle as well. Mr. Mahan. I remember his name. Because I'm sure, and very often in class, I would raise my hand and ask a question, and he would look at me like, Oh, you foolish one. You are so slow. How many times am I going to have to review this? And he got to a point where he just wouldn't even call on me. But in his kindness, in his graciousness to me, he'd open up his room, he'd get to the school early. And so I could pass that class, which I needed to do. I'd show up at 7 a.m., Mr. Mahan would re-review everything that he taught the day before and make sure that I understood it. You want to know why I remember Mr. Mahan? I don't remember many from school. I didn't really do much in that part of my life. <laughs> Went a big focal point. Sorry, Hudson. But I remember him because of his graciousness. And Jesus rebukes these two disciples and he says, how many times do I have to teach you? But notice what he does. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, get out of here. I did everything. I showed you enough. I'm not doing it again. I'm not going to tell you one more time. No. In graciousness and mercifully, Jesus sits down with these two disciples and He says, I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to show you again. And perhaps you might believe. This morning, Jesus might be saying to you this morning, I'm going to tell you again. You've been to 37 Easter resurrection services and you still don't believe. Let me show you again. Let me tell you one more time how much I love you. Let me tell you one more time what God intends for your life if you would just believe. You've heard it over and over and over again. Or perhaps there's some of you 
much smarter than I am. This is the first time you'll hear it, and you'll believe because you're an A student. (laughs) Praise God if that's you. Jesus sits these disciples down. He walks with them and He begins to tell them again all the things that from the, the, the Scriptures opens up the Bible. And as they're walking, they're so intrigued this time. It's always amazing to me that this time they're really paying attention. Isn't it interesting? It took Jesus' death. It took the hardships, the pain, and the suffering. Do you want to know why sometimes we have to suffer? Because that's the only way that God gets our attention. We don't usually pay attention when things are great. We don't usually pay attention when everything's sunshines and roses. We are just sort of high on the vine. I don't even know what that means, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> We're feeling good. But it's when we get broken, when we're humbled, perhaps we believe. So if you're broken, if you're humbled, if you're hurting this morning, perhaps this morning you would believe. But so they take these disciples and they invite him to have dinner. He's, they say, Jesus, come stay with us. Come have a meal with us. We want to keep hearing from you. And as soon as they sit down, they get all of the dinner ready, they gather at the table, and Jesus breaks the bread, it says. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It is toward evening and the day is not far, as the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And notice what happens. Verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized Him. When Jesus broke the bread, many scholars believe that Jesus perhaps had some special way of breaking the bread. And so when these two disciples, they saw the way this Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened to recognize, it's Him. He's alive. They had known They had believed at least. They had thought they knew that He was dead. And now when they saw Him, they knew that He was alive. And it's interesting, as soon as they recognize Him, as soon as Jesus reveals who He is, that He is with them, that He is alive, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Savior of the world, that He is the God-man who came to redeem us all, that He had surely died, and here, yes, He was surely alive, He leaves. He vanishes. Jesus had answered the one question they needed to know. He was alive. I find it interesting in my walk with Christ, Jesus always answers the question that I need to know. Some of you have trouble trouble believing because you don't get the answers that you think you need to know. Jesus answers the only question that we need to know. He is alive. All the other questions are great. One day we'll have a chance to ask Him those questions. But the only question that really matters is, is Jesus alive? And if He's alive, then He's victorious over sin and death. And if that's the case, nothing in this world can touch you. Nothing in this world can stand in your way. Nothing in this world can stop you from bringing glory to God. Hardships come, glory to God. Joy comes, glory to God when we know that we know that He's alive. And so I believe that's why Jesus vanished immediately after He revealed Himself to them. They knew that He was alive. That's all they needed to know. He knows that had, they, had He stuck around for dinner, it would have been a really long dinner with them asking them all sorts of questions. Well, what happened on Saturday? And what happened here? And why did you do that? And how about this? And how come you didn't tell us in the first place? Why didn't you just paint a picture for us? You could have just kind of drawn the cross. They would have gone all over the place. But no, that didn't matter. All those details didn't matter. 
We can look at those and we can study those later. What matters is that He is alive. So Jesus, He reveals Himself to His disciples at the table. So often in Scripture, God uses the table, uses the occasion of gathering around the table to encourage us, to move, to speak to, with Him. He shows them that everything He'd said had been true. And he assured, I'm going to introduce you, perhaps for the first time, some of us, to a man named Mephibosheth. Try saying that at the sunrise service. Mephibosheth. There you go. Mephibosheth. He's forgotten, perhaps because of his name. No one is, we're, not telling, we're not retelling stories of Mephibosheth because no one can say his name, so we don't want to do that. But Mephibosheth was a helpless, sometimes hopeless, and perhaps even a doubter. No different than some of us sometimes. But that wasn't how he started in this life. Mephibosheth is the son of King David's great friend Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, we meet Mephibosheth, or we hear of Mephibosheth's story. See, King David, or excuse me, King Saul was the king of Israel. He wasn't a great king, but he ruled all of Israel. And because he wasn't a great king, ultimately, and some of us know the story of David and Goliath and other things that David did, God anoints David to be the king of Israel. And as soon as David is anointed to be the king of Israel, Saul, the current king, of course can't handle that, so he says, I'm going to kill David. And so he starts chasing David in all of 1 Samuel, that book of the Bible. A lot of that encapsulates the story of Saul pursuing David to ultimately kill him. At the beginning of 2 Samuel, we hear that uh, Dave, excuse me, Saul and his son Jonathan, who was a dear friend to David, David would say of Jonathan that no one loved him like Jonathan did. He was his very best friend in the world. But these two men, the Saul and his son Jonathan, were killed in battle. And so at that point, having been anointed king, David is made king over all of Israel. And as he is made king over all of Israel... David wants to do something. He wants to do something that's radical. He wants to do something that not many of us, I believe, would ever do. It says in verse 1 of chapter 9, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David says to his helpers, his servants, Jonathan, my friend is dead, but I want to bless his descendants. Is there anyone alive from Jonathan's family? from Saul's family. And the respondent says in verse 2, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage to him. It says of Mephibosheth that he was crippled in his feet. 
In chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Samuel, we read just this very brief interlude that after Saul and Jonathan are found to be killed, in 4, verse 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, who had crippled in his feet, he was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan and Saul are killed. Mephibosheth is only five years old. The person responsible for carrying him assumes, because this is what would have happened in the world, that the people who killed Saul and Jonathan will surely come after anyone in his line because they don't want to have any possibility that someone would claim the throne from David. And so, because she thinks that he's going to be killed, she does what she can. She cares for this young child, and she, in her haste, grabs him up, but there's a fall, and his feet are broken, and he becomes lame. Now, in the context of this day and age, Mephibosheth at that point would have had no ability to care for himself. If you couldn't work, which he wouldn't have been able to do, he wouldn't have been able to provide for himself. He wouldn't have been able to provide for a family. And so it's believed more than likely by the time David calls for him to come and see him, he's a beggar. He has no hope. He's hurting. He's hopeless. But David... Being a man after God's own heart, as it is said of him, wants to bless his friend Jonathan's son. So he brings him to his court. And this is what David says as Mephibosheth is down on his faith, paying homage to the king. Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Verse 7, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer King David. Mephibosheth knew that rightly he should have been probably killed at one point in his life. He asked the question of David after he hears this, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? But 1 Corinthians 15 also says that in Christ, not because of anything that you could do, but because of who your Father is. Because He sent His Son to lay down His life for you to deal with that fall. Because that Son took up His life again three days later and walked out of the grave overcoming uh, that fall. Having victory over sin and death, not because of you, but because of Him, you will eat at the King's table. You will be welcomed in forever and ever. All of the suffering of this life had convinced Mephibosheth that that's all that life has come to us. Generation upon generation, it is true. And believe that I am alive. If so, if you'll believe those two things, here's what Jesus promises you. You will dine at the King's table for all eternity. And that is hope. That is hope. You might feel like a dead dog today because of what you see with your eyes. What you believe in your heart is what propels you forward and secures your eternity. Secures that hope. Will you believe that Jesus is real? Will you believe that He is alive? I close with this. Today, I pray that you might believe. But one of the realities of this life is that tomorrow, Monday morning, just like Sunday's coming, we know on Sunday mornings, Monday is coming. 
And we might begin to drift away once again and become hopeless, just like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We'll be tempted to think that all our hopes for redemption were futile. And this is why it's so vital that we celebrate Easter, not just this Sunday morning, but every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning we gather with God's people to worship a Savior who conquered death and sin for all time. It's a reminder when we gather together and we sing and we hear the Word preached to us that Jesus is alive. As one artist says, His love is the eternal spring that brings the dead alive. His love for you is what makes you alive. As the worship team is coming forward, I'm just asking you to bow your head and your hearts before God. And I ask you, will you believe that Jesus is real this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is real? Not because of what you see, maybe what you've experienced in your life, but because of what He says, what He has done. And will you believe that He is alive? Surely and truly alive. Perhaps you're someone this morning that like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you heard the love of your Father. You heard the welcome to the table that He just offered to you. And in a moment, your eyes have been opened and you say, yes, I believe. I see that Jesus, the Jesus I've heard of and even knew all His stories, today I know that He's alive. Then praise God, rejoice and worship Jesus. You have been redeemed. You have been made whole. You have been given hope. Remember. Holy Spirit, seal your word on our hearts. Help us to remember, help us to believe that Jesus is surely alive. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.